Okay, quickly before we jump into uh, the Bible passage, really the thing that God stirred and put on our hearts this week as a community, I want to just celebrate something with together and, and let you in on something that happened this week. So um, if you've been tracking with us for all for like the last month, you probably heard a little bit about a resource center, the thing that God's called our community to be a part of. Really, as we talk about our vision to love Santa Ana one person at a time, we've been figuring out and praying and discerning, God, what does that look like for us here and now? And this resource center... Uh, really, God led us to this, and this will be a storefront here in Santa Ana. It'll be a place of ministry towards four groups of people, those that experience homeless, those homelessness, those that are underemployed and unemployed, single parents, and immigrants. And this will be a place for us to minister and help and come alongside them in relationship uh, in Jesus' name. And part of that uh, is we need money, right? Like we are uh, dependent on God showing up because we can't do ministry without money. Big shocker, I know. Um, to the capacity that we believe God's called us to. And we've, we've said as a community to get us through one year of this resource center, believing if, if we can step into this as a year, God will provide a way. Thereafter, we need to fundraise $35,000. That will, that will cover all, um, our, our lease and rent for a facility. That will help us enable us to actually have the resources to help and provide and walk with people. And so part of my prayer, um, and I want to let you in kind of like the stirring that's been going on in me as we think about $35,000, that is a lot of money for a church plant. Right? That's like, I, I, I mean, I'm terrible. Casey, where are you at? What percentage of our budget is that? Okay, I put Casey on the spot. It's, 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 it's a lot, right? And, and, but what's been fun about that is we believe everything's God's. Right? That's like when we planted this church, the, 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 our budget and what we're sound to sounded like a lot as well, and God provided a way for us, and we're still here a year and a half later. Um, and so breaking up uh, and praying and thinking about what, God, what's reunion specific part? I knew that we had to go outside of this place to, for funds. That was just a reality. We had to have other people that believe in us, that are with us, that support us, other churches that say, we believe what God's doing in this community and we're going to come along and we're going to show you that we're with you. And we had a church give us 10,000, right? A check for 10,000. That, that, that was the amount that gave us the faith. All right, okay, this is real. Let's keep going. And then I knew we needed another church to give us 10,000. And, uh, uh, and you guys know we come from, we're planted out of Rock Harbor, Costa Mesa. Um, Rock Harbor actually heard about this uh, when we were in Maui, emailed me and said, uh, we got to get together. We want to actually talk to you and just hear about what's going on, right? And through my prayer, I discerned, I believe, the Lord say, ask Rock Harbor for $10,000. I was like, okay, I feel like they did a lot already, but all right. So I'm having lunch at Crave with somebody from Rock Harbor and um, we kind of just start, I feel like I'm starting like, okay, I'm going to start selling this now. I'm going to start going for it. I'm like, I'm all, all right, all right, man. I'll just tell you straight up what we need. I'm like, we need $10,000. And he says, pulls out a check and says, that's what the Lord told us too. And threw a check of $10,000 on the table for us, um, which is amazing. We can like celebrate that. That's amazing, guys. And so, and then where we're at as a community, we've been able to fundraise another additional about $4,000. We're right around that. So we're sitting at $24,000. We're 11000 away from our target minimum goal for this resource center. And this is where we then look inward. I believe God's called us as a church to give $15,000 minimum to the resource center. Uh, through prayer, through discernment, this is what I think we can do as a community. We, if you remember your round, we needed a truck in September, right? And we like, all right, we need $15,000. We did it as a community. We did that for a truck. All right, I'm thinking about a year of ministry in our city, of seeing people's lives change, of taking the gospel and serving the least of these. We can do this as a community. And so I come uh, just being honest and just saying, would you enter into a prayerful space? Would you just enter into a time this week, all week, prayer, fast, 
discernment, conversations with people in your reunion group, people that you trust, whatever it looks like, and just ask the Holy Spirit, what is my part to play? How much do you want me to give to the the resource center? And I would just say, whatever the Lord tells you, just be obedient with whatever that is. And and I'm excited to see what God's going to do. We're now in the place where I'm looking at this 11,000s thinking, a week ago, it felt like a mountain that this was not going to, and now I'm looking, I'm like, oh man, this is going to happen. And now we're like, all right, let's start looking for a spot. Let's start looking for a place. And so we, we need to get to that extra place. So would you just pray? Would you seek the Lord, um, trusting that this is the thing that God's called us to? Does that sound good? All right. And I'm excited to see how God continues to answer prayers in our community and how he wants to use you to play a part, to know this will be everlasting uh, impact into people's lives. Okay. We are uh, in part five. We're wrapping up our series, Let It Be Known. Um, If you've forgotten, we were in Acts before this a while ago. So next week we'll be getting back into Acts. And we're going to continue to see how the Holy Spirit is building the church. But what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this season of talking about the heart behind why God's called us to love uh, one person at a time. The why behind why it is that we believe that God's called us to be a beacon of hope, a city on a hill as a community here. And it's important as we even start something like the Resource Center to not see that as something to just attach to our to-do list of something else that we need to do amongst our busy lives, but to understand the heart behind Jesus and the life that he gave. And so we've been looking at different stories and different interactions that Jesus has had with people that society has largely rejected and ignored. Simply because we believe that Jesus sought people out that society wanted nothing to do with. That this is the role of the church. is to extend their lives to people that really will never repay you. Extend a relationship with people that will never ever come to a Sunday gathering. Why? Because this is where Jesus came. He came for, to seek and save the lost. And so we want to be a community that does this as well. And so the passage that we're going to be in, you can turn to John chapter 8, uh, is a controversial passage, I must warn you. It's not for the faint of heart. I must warn you. These are the words I love to hear when people talk about stuff. Because I'm like, God, I'm in. Dangerous? I'm in. Adventure? I'm in. It's adventurous and it's dangerous. You in? No. Uh, but this is a passage that uh, has a lot of controversy behind it. It's, it's a passage that I can't really remember ever being taught. It's not that I haven't studied it. I've actually preached it before. But it's a passage that large uh, amounts of churches actually kind of just move around because it brings up an issue that's hard to talk about in church. Sexual sin. When we talk about sexual sin, it brings stuff up in every one of us. I can just tell you I felt the mood change in the room. Right? Like, if there's something that stirs in us, it's like, oh, no, not there. Right? And that feeling that we have when we even just say the word sexual sin stirs up stuff in us that also stirred people up when Jesus was here. And and there's an automatic uh, barrier that goes up in between people that automatically could really inhibit a relationship that will inhibit people from even experiencing the grace of Jesus. Because people that maybe have nothing to do with church, or people that are living in some sort of undealt secret or whatever it is, would look at the church and say, that's not a place for me. Those are all perfect people. I'm not perfect. Do you see what we've done? And, and I don't say that to, to tear down the church. I believe in the church. That's why we planted the church. But I'm just saying, if we could be open and honest, as we look at the church and we think about the things that maybe the church has said and the message that it preaches... It's, it's been a message that there's no room for certain people at the table of grace. That you must clean up, you must get your life together, uh, or you at least pretend that your life is together, and when that's there, you can then come be a part of our community. You can be on leadership, you can be an elder, whatever it is, right? But we see Jesus, in certain ways, attaching himself to people and sticking up for people that religious people uh, 
rejected, and quite honestly wanted to kill. And that's what we're going to see in this story. So John chapter 8, we're going to be actually looking at, uh, we'll start in John chapter 7, verse 53. That gives us some context that will really help us see what uh, what it is that, uh, that it's happening in this passage. So if you're there, um, and I'm going to kind of just read a little bit, and we're going to kind of work our way through this together, all right? So here we go. Uh, verse, seven, uh, verse 53. Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. Okay, so what we, what we can see about Jesus, and something that's very clear if you study his life at all, Jesus was a very disciplined man, right? Jesus had a routine. Anybody in here like routines? Who's a routine? Who would identify and say, I'm a routine person? When that routine gets, thank you, Cody. Where's Daggy? Oh, we got, we got a peanut gallery back there. Hi, guys. There's Daggy. Daggy's a routine person, too. And, and we've talked about this all the time. You love your routine. I can look around. I know Ballmeyer's a routine. I love my routine. And when our routine gets interrupted, we get grumpy. We don't want people to interrupt our schedule, whether it is you're working on your computer at your work. Maybe you get annoyed when another coworker comes up and says, hey, buddy, what's going on? Leave me alone. I'm trying to get stuff done. Whatever our routine is, we see that Jesus had a routine. We're told that while Jesus was in Jerusalem during the specific time of when, when the story is being recorded, is that Jesus would get up early every morning and he'd go to the temple to preach. Many people would gather around him to hear what he would have to say. He would encourage. And, and I, I really believe that Jesus woke up excited and expectant for his day. That he couldn't help realize people are going to get saved today. People are going to get healed today. People are going to encounter God in a fresh new way. This is the motivation that Jesus had and why he got up early and went to the temple. John and Luke tell us, as we see in this passage, that when the sun would go down, Jesus would return to the Mount of Olives. I love what Mark says. Mark gets a little bit more specific. And he tells us that Jesus stayed in Bethany, in which we know, if you've heard the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, you know if you've read any of the Gospels that these were very close, intimate people with Jesus. In fact, Jesus, there's one time where Jesus is recorded in scripture, Jesus cried. When? When Lazarus was dead. And so Mary and Martha and Lazarus were the closest friends, we think, to Jesus. They were much like family. And this is the place that we can see as we take all the different gospel accounts that Jesus would go back to since Bethany, the city, is located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And so this is the routine of Jesus. This is the thing that he had going on. But when we talk about routine, I think the difference is between Jesus and myself is that Jesus, his schedule was designed to be interruptible. In fact, like he knew I was gonna, I'm going to go to the temple, but I'm not sure what's going to happen at the temple. I know I'm going to preach. I'm going to tell people about the grace of God and the love of God, but I'm not sure what's going to happen in between there. And so Jesus lived with a, like a spontaneity of his day. That's what fueled him. That's what made him excited to do the things that he believed he was here to do. And so let's keep reading. Verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. As a teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked this, I love this right here, they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So what's happening here? 
Jesus is doing what he always does. He's in his routine. He's preaching. He's hanging out with people. And something that always happened is happening. The Pharisees show up. And they've got a problem with Jesus, right? This is something that Jesus was used to in his schedule. A lot of times the Pharisees would come up and they would uh, debate Jesus on a topic. They would try to catch him in saying something to get rid of him. But largely, and what makes this, this scene a little bit different, a lot different, is that they didn't come alone. They actually brought somebody with them. They brought a woman with them and they were dragging her along. And, and we know the, the passage tells us that she was caught in the act of adultery. So she could be a prostitute, she could be a mistress, she could be a wife that's cheated on her husband. We just don't know that what, the, what the text shows us and what the story is, that she was caught in the act of adultery. And I think we talk about culture, we talk about context. The most important cultural element within this story is the accusation that's made against this woman. The, the, the Pharisees say, Jesus, we caught her. We saw her with our own eyes, we heard her with our own ears being caught in the act of adultery. And this, 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 this accusation, if we think about it in the Greek construction in the sentence, it's clear that the Pharisees are making a legal claim against her. They're, they're thinking about a law, and they know the outcome of this law. So as they're bringing this woman to Jesus, they know that there is an expectation of what now should happen to this woman. That they possess enough evidence to convict her of a crime that resulted in public stoning. And if that didn't do the trick, public hanging right in the square for everybody to come and watch. And so a little, little bit more history. Like we talk about Jewish law. It comes up a lot. This is where the Pharisees always went back to. They went back to the law, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and the Jewish law was written by men. And we talk about when the Pharisees say the law says that when we catch a woman that's caught in the act of adultery, really that, that law was written uh, because there were a lot of suspicious husbands about their wives. There were a lot of fearful husbands out there that their wives were running away from them and doing things with other men that they should not be doing. So there was a lobby to create a law that if a woman actually did this, this is what would happen to them, death. So there's fear driven now in marriage. There's things like this that actually caused this law to be written. And, and what required a conviction, what required death, we see is two witnesses. This is what the law tells us. There had to be two people that saw it happening. And not only were it saw it happening, they had to actually say the place. So their stories had to come together. So when there was someone put on trial, these two eyewitness accounts had to match. Now you're probably wondering, yeah, we've come a long way as a civilization, haven't we? <laughs> a long way, right? There was no DNA evidence. There's no forensic evidence at this time. The best thing that was available were people's eyes and people's ears. Creepy, I know. But uh, oh, that's, that's, that's the past. That's what, this is what we're told. This is, this is all they had. So what we see from this scenario, it's setting itself up to be, remember, caught in the act of adultery. This is important. The scenario is setting itself up to be revealed as a sting operation. I used to watch these shows as a kid all the time. I love the stings, right? Cops go out, they pretend to be somebody that they're not. Gotcha! That's what this is. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees knew that if they can get rid of Jesus, they need to catch a woman in the act of adultery 
And that, that, would, that would solve their problems with Jesus. Jesus is getting more fame. People are going more to him. They don't like the message of grace that Jesus is preaching. And so they knew that if they can catch somebody that's the least of these, they've heard the message of Jesus just like we're talking about. Jesus is preaching every day. They know the message of Jesus. And in their minds, they know this will be hard for Jesus to turn down. We know what Jesus would want to do. But in their minds, there's only two things that they really put two potential outcomes that they think will happen as they're talking about the sinner as they catch a woman in adultery. The first is if they get Jesus to condemn her, then he compromises his message of grace. And if he compromises his message of grace, he's a hypocrite. Everybody will hear it. Everybody will see it. That guy just says stuff. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't really do the things he says. And we all know, whether it's a pastor, boss, or whoever it is, that's the number one thing to compromise anybody's character, mission, goals, calling, whatever. It's hypocrisy. So they're hoping they can get Jesus to be a hypocrite. The second outcome they think, and this is probably the one that's more plausible and the first thing in their mind, is that if they can get Jesus to forgive her, then he would contradict the law, which would get Jesus in big, big trouble with the Roman government. And that would end up in imprisonment and probably most likely death, right? So these, this is all the outcomes that they could see. And if you think about it, they were willing to use, the Pharisees were willing to use a woman that they had really no respect for, uh, didn't even see as an individual. They were willing to use her to get in the way to actually get rid of Jesus, and this is, this is what's happening. You think this would sound like a hook, line, and sinker, right? How this is setting itself up to be. Let's keep reading. Verse 6b. I always wanted to say that. <laughs> Jesus, after this accusation, Jesus then stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down and continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stooped down, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus knows, hey, this is where they're going, and I'm not even give them the ounce of energy that they want me to give. And Jesus doesn't even respond. The passage is almost fascinating. He just stoops down. Picture he kind of gets down on his knees. It's dirty. It's dusty. Tons of people around. And Jesus just starts to write in the dirt. There's a big debate on what Jesus does here. There are some commentaries that say Jesus is just doodling. (laughs) Playing hangman. I don't know. What is it that you play or what would you doodle in the dirt? They're saying he's just doing that to waste time to really kind of drive the Pharisees, those that are accusing him, to frustration and anger. Like, Jesus is messing with them. There's a whole other commentary that says, no, they think Jesus actually stooped down and started writing Bible verses in. Um, If I was saying I was going to pick one, that's the one I would go with. I always try to side with the Bible other than doodling. But, But here's what we can say about this passage. We know that Jesus wrote something or did something, something down there that agitated the Pharisees. They got frustrated It says they became more persistent with their questions. The original Greek here, I tell you, it's more firm, strong emotions. They're getting angry. They're getting frustrated. They're getting agitated. The temperature is going and increasing for them. They're realizing, oh no, he did it to us again. He's making us look like a fool in front of everybody. Jesus is winning, right? 
And so whatever happened, we know that Jesus silences the accusation against this woman with one statement. And it's a beautiful statement. It says this, the one without sin, this is what Jesus says, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. With that statement, Jesus is actually taking an Old Testament law. He's using the law that the Pharisees like to do, and he's using it against them. And it's a law found in Deuteronomy 17.7. And it says this, that those who witness a crime and bring home a successful accusation must be the first to throw a stone at the victim. So you have to have witnesses, and it has to be successful in order for this to happen, right? And so what's Jesus doing? There's some, there's some teachings out there that say, like, Jesus is, like, saying, like, hey, all of us are sinners, so you have no room. That's actually not the translation that's happening here. Jesus is turning the law around on them, and he's using the law to go well beyond an obligation or a duty. He's forcing the Pharisees to reflect on their hypocrisy. And he's poking holes in their sting operation. The passage never records witnesses, does it? The law says you've got to have two witnesses. There's no witnesses in this story. It's just the Pharisees saying, she was caught. We're told about this. She's right here. But the witnesses are nowhere to be found. I think that's an interesting part. But what's, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, how can the accused be the accuser? How can, how can a flawed individual condemn another flawed individual? Only perfection has the ability to accuse. See what Jesus is doing here. He's equally in the playing field. Jesus is saying them, saying to them that, that living a life as an accuser is assuming responsibility that they have no right towards. That Jesus uh, gets on the ground again. <laughs> I love he just starts writing more. And what we're told then, what happens, is an aha awakening, revelation moment, where the Pharisees start their exit. And again, in the Greek construction of this sentence, it, it comes back to mean there weren't just a couple of Pharisees. There was actually a big group of them, and they were slowly trickling away, one by one, hoping Jesus doesn't make any more fools of themselves. And what happens? John says, the oldest ones went first. Why? Because the older we get, the more recognized how flawed we actually are. The older we get, we start to open up our eyes to our imperfections. One day I used to think I was invincible. One day I used to think that I was above the law. But the older I get, the more I realize, oh, there's more powerful people out there. There's smarter people out there. I'm all not that all that perfect. And so the older ones were wise, and they left, and the young ones got a good clue, and they're like, oh, we should probably go too, even though they probably had no idea why they're leaving. And then it was like, let's fight them some more. But they followed the older lead, and they, and they exited. Let's keep going. Verse 10. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and don't sin any more. So now that all the accusers are gone, Jesus is alone with this woman. And Jesus here, I think find it fascinating for how big of a deal this event was near the synagogue in Jerusalem. How big of a deal this is. How many people were watching. This is the very first time that Jesus actually talks with her. 
that Jesus actually looks at her and he says, woman, I don't condemn you. Now you might read that in our culture, in our context. That's degrading. Why is Jesus calling her woman? We don't say that in our culture. What's up, woman? We don't say that. It's, not in our, it's, it's disrespectful to say that now, but it's important to know in first century Judaism, it was a sign of affection and endearment. Jesus actually called his mom woman. So it's a sign of affection. It's a sign of respect. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And, and Jesus says, and it, really the response, when Jesus, when Jesus talks to her, her response is so beautiful. I love it because it's the changing point in her life. And she says, Lord. She calls Jesus Lord. To me, if you want to talk about what it means to declare faith in Jesus, it's this. It's the most beautiful, uh, simple, but yet profound way to address who Jesus is in your life. Lord, you're king. You're in charge. I, I recognize how broken I am. I recognize how perfect you are. You're my Lord, Lord, Lord. We don't know too much about her life, but it's fair to say the life that she was living, she was living far away from Jesus. It doesn't mean that Jesus is far away from her, but it just means that things going on in her life, there were barriers, there were walls up from her having a real interaction with Jesus. And in this specific time, it was adultery. It was the thing that was getting in the way. Now, I can't help but think about that's true for us today, right? We, think about, we talk about sexual sin. Um, in the church, there's all kinds of topics. I won't get into this too much. We talk about this in groups this week, if you'd like. But what would be hot topics today in church? Um, that the church largely condemns people. Premarital sex, porn, homosexuality. Things like this where we automatically divide walls. And if we are struggling with either of these things or we are apathetic towards these things, what generally happens is a wall goes up between us and Jesus, but also between us and a Christ-like community. Because we feel like if I'm actually honest with this stuff and I say these things out loud, churches preach grace, but as soon as I've seen it, my, actually I've seen this myself, at church I grew up. Somebody very close to me had a baby out of wedlock. And somebody very close to me, I'm not giving any names because there's a podcast. <laughs> they were shunned by the church. They were on leadership and they had to step out of leadership and it was never the same since because of a decision that somebody made. The, church was, the church's response wasn't grace and love and prayer like we see Jesus here. It was that of the Pharisees accusing. How dare you? Your sin is what you are. And we see Jesus very carefully drawing the line. This is a whole conversation. This is a whole can of worms. I get I'm opening up. But Jesus never looked at somebody and knew the most intimate, deep secrets about them and attached it to their identity. Jesus looks at people and says, you are a child of God. You are a daughter. You are a son. That's who you are. By the way, we're going to get in a whole identity conversation in the fall that you need to be here for. I'm so excited about it. The more I'm realizing, the more I'm growing, more I'm having conversations with people. When we talk and we say, hey, who are you? That's a fascinating conversation to have with people. And I begin to realize we don't have really any clue who we are. So we're going to get into this conversation. But Jesus draws the line very, very clear. And he approaches a relationship with you and me out of the grounds that we're sons and we're daughters of God, the living God. And so, so, so this, is, this, is, this is what's so significant about this passage. And out of this declaration of faith that she has with Jesus, we then see what the passage is all about. Jesus sets her free. How? Physically. First, she had a death sentence. She was going to the, 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 the grounds where she would be stoned or hung. 
That she, she already gave into that. She knew, she knew how my day was ending. Jesus had a different plan. He sets her free physically. And then he says, go and sin no more. I love this because we can't use this passage to say that Jesus uh, condones sin. He doesn't. He just doesn't hold it against you. He said, don't sin. Why would you? You're free. The old is gone. The new has come. Why would you live in your old self? You have a new life to live. Don't hold yourself back. Don't sabotage your life. I want to give you new life. Life to the abundance. Keep going. Stop it. And that's the message for some of us today. Just stop it. There's no other other word. Jesus just says, stop it. Put one foot in front of the other. Stop it. And then he sets her free spiritually, which is really beautiful because he tells her, all your accusers are gone, aren't they? She looks around. I guess they are. He says, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go live your new life into freedom. And that's what this passage is all about, isn't it? It's freedom. Well, how, how do we get there? Forgiveness. It all starts with forgiveness. This passage is all about the road of forgiveness. That was kind of, I like that. The road of forgiveness. And I, and I want to kind of just set up quickly four different markers that this passage lays out for us of what that road of forgiveness might look like for you and for me. Okay? It's important for us to understand because, and I say that to say, a lot of us here would, the last road that we may identify ourselves on is the road of forgiveness. We're on a lot of different roads, right? Whether it's the road of work or career or pride or lust or whatever, right? We might be identifying the road that we're walking on, fear, anxiety. And we want to get on the road, but we're like, what does that look like? Well, this passage sets up four markers of what it looks like, how today, right here, right now, we can all walk out of this place walking on the road of forgiveness together. And the first thing that we see in the passage of verse 3, it says is that forgiveness is experienced through awareness. It's clear that this woman knew about her sin. She knew what was going on. The passage doesn't say, and she tried to rebuttal. She lawyered up. And so you guys are all lying. This is a false accusation. She knew. She knew the life that she was living. No one had to tell her, right? I'm afraid to admit this. I got pulled over this past week. So I, you guys, have probably there's a misunderstanding about me here, and that's that I'm perfect, and that I follow the law, and I, yeah. So I was running late home, and Jesse had to get to a meeting, and I was in Anaheim, stuck in traffic, and I got pulled over in the carpool lane. Anybody ever done that? Yeah. Who can admit, this is a place of, has anybody ever rode in the carpool lane and, and you've only been by yourself? Daggy, thank you, you're honest. Nathan, okay. It's okay, it's okay. I would encourage you to stop because you're going to get caught. I got caught. And there was, it went through my mind immediately because guess what? The, the carpool lane exits onto Main. We live on Main Park, Santiago, right here in the street. So our carpool, and this is where it's very tempting for me, is it dumps off straight into my neighborhood. And so for me, it's so quick. I save five minutes by doing that. And I got all the way into my neighborhood before he cop pulled me over. A motorcycle copy. He's like, you by yourself in here? I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> and it was in me for a second to say, I wasn't in the carpool lane. Prove it. Because he didn't pull me over in the carpool lane. But he saw me exit out of the light that was in the carpool lane. But there's that moment, right? Where I'm like, guilty. <laughs> yeah, I did it. 500 bucks, here I come. <laughs> we'll take an offering. It's okay. <laughs> But what we see here is that, that, that she, she understands. She has an awareness of her sin. It's real. 
And she was ready to accept her punishment. And so before we could ever walk and step foot on the road of forgiveness, we've got to recognize that we are broken people. And we need help. We need Jesus on a regular basis. That this is us in the story. We are the ones being accused. There are voices, there are lies. People are sowing seeds in our life all the time. Maybe someone already has. And today is your opportunity to let that go. Someone's told you you're not good enough. Someone's told you you're too flawed. Someone told you you're not loved. Someone said you're not useful. A boss maybe told you you're not qualified. Whatever that is, someone's sowed a seed into your life that puts us up in a place to believe we are what we're being accused of. So don't mistake this. You don't need to give in to that, but we have to admit, yeah, we're broken. Yeah, we're flawed. And we see in this story that sometimes an accusation against us that's meant to harm us, God will use to love us. That God wants to speak new truth into us. And he wants to speak clear calling into us. It's not that God's love's ever far away, but sometimes it's true. I know I do. I keep my distance from God, right? And then I blame it on God to say, why are you so far away from me? But it's me. Second, forgiveness uh, fights against persistent accusation. It's important with this passage to recognize where the accusations are coming from. The accusations are coming from where? Thank you, Nathan. I don't have anything to give you, but yes. Yeah, they're coming from the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're not coming from Jesus, are they? It's very clear that Jesus is not the accuser in the story. That Jesus isn't, he's not the one saying, Stoner, you're right, you caught her, how dare she? Jesus is not the one accusing. Yes, Scripture says he's the judge. And he's just. But I want to draw a quick parallel. I, I, I believe in what I think from scripture, scripture. Judge and accusing are two very different things. And I'll be very, very clear on how I say this. To judge means to do what's right. It's to say what's true, right? This is the, this is the role of judges in society. The good ones. Is that they do what's right. They do what's just. To accuse is to falsify. To accuse is to say something against someone that's meant to degrade, to humiliate, and to dehumanize. At the heartbeat, as I understand it, to make an accusation against somebody is self-seeking. It's meant to make me feel good about myself. The heart of accusation tears down individuals. It's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus lifts people's heads and souls and gives people, fills people with hope, joy, love, and peace. Accusation condemns and wants to see people destroyed. This is what the Pharisees' heart was in this moment. Not just for a woman, but also for Jesus. They wanted to take the message of grace and squash it down forever. And they wanted to lift up the law of obligation and duty to say this is the right way to live. And Jesus had a completely different plan. To Jesus does just the opposite. It's important to draw a parallel to accusing very quickly while we're on the topic. What is, what is scripture, what name does scripture give to the devil? The deceiver, the accuser, depending on the translation that you might have, right? The devil is the accuser. It calls him the father of lies. That is a strong term. You're the father of lies. Don't ever call somebody that. That's terrible. 
But the devil, the devil's chief objective with your life and to mine is to keep telling us that our sin is who we are. We'll never be free from it. We'll never get away from it. And he wants to see that happen. He wants to see you buy that lie. And he wants to keep you in a place of shame and guilt. This is what makes the devil happy with our lives. It's to believe what we are. To believe what we do. And Jesus loves us before anything. He says in Psalms, I I knit you together in your mother's womb. I knew you. I, I saw you. I loved you. Before I became a pastor. Before I gave money away. Before I helped fed a homeless person. Before I did any of that. Jesus just looks at me. I loved you before you even did anything. And that's where he wants to keep bringing us back to in this relationship with him. Again, it's important to realize Jesus is not okay with our sin. I want to be very clear on that. Um, One pastor once said, it was like a message that's always stood out to me. He said, like, when was the last time you actually wept over your sin? When was the last time your sin actually brought you to a place of recognition of, oh yeah, this this isn't God's best for me. This is actually sabotaging my life. Because when we talk about forgiveness, it's important to recognize that forgiveness is not a means to sin, right? That was a conversation I did. I was a high school pastor for a long time. And this was one of the number one conversations that always get brought up. I can sin. I can keep sinning because forgiveness. It's like, but is that, your, is that what God's best is for you? Is that what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus? Is this what Jesus lived? Thank you, Bethany. Appreciate that. Feel free to chime in like Bethany does, please. But there's, there's a difference, right? So, so uh, let's, let's, be on, let's be aware. I just want us to encourage this real quick. And I'm moving on. The band's going to come up. Uh, let's not be people who accuse other people. Let's not be accusers. Let's watch what we say. Let's watch our reactions towards people. Let's be very careful with the words that come out of our mouths and, and, and the thoughts that we think because it's damaging to people. And we'll have an opportunity to respond with that moment. But, but let's not be accusers. Let's be, let's be people that speak grace and love because this is the message of Jesus. If we accuse, it's the, we're doing the opposite. We're battling with the enemy. We're not serving with Jesus. Okay? And lastly, or third, I should say, we're, we're, we're almost done. You guys Okay? Forgiveness frees us from the things that trap us. I automatically think of the words of Paul, and, and we'll have it up on here on the screen, Romans seven fifteen through 20. Paul says this, one of the most brilliant verses in the whole Bible. Please try to track with it. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So now, and that's where the Pharisees were. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin that's living inside of me. All that to say... A lot of us, I think, myself included, live my life being controlled by the things I don't want to do. I know what I don't want to do. I know the things that are harmful for my soul. I know the things that are harmful for my marriage. I know the things that are harmful towards people around me. But yet I still do these things. I'm controlled by them, right? And we know we shouldn't, but it quickly debilitates us and we give into a place of this is just how it's always going to be. And we just get comfortable with it. We get apathetic with it. The things that are destroying our soul, that are pushing us far from God. He's not pushing far from us. 
There are things we keep coming back to over and over again. Jesus knows this about us, by the way. This is why he came to us. This is why he comes and he sits across the table from us. He's like, I'm coming for you. I know you need saving. Whether you recognize it or not, this is why some of us come to faith at different points, right? Our stories are all different. The roads that we're walking on are all different lengths, are all different miles. But, 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 the, but the message and what the gospel is, is that the gospel is coming for you. Jesus is coming for you. And if you find your place ever feeling like, yeah, I keep doing things that I don't want to do and I know it's not good for me, that's, that's, that's a clue in my mind. And as I talk with people, Jesus is pursuing you, isn't he? And we don't know how long that road's going to be. But Jesus knows this about us. He came to offer us a new way to live. And this is what this story is all about. And if this was the case, if, if the things that do trap us, if the things that do hinder us are really bad for us, I think Jesus would have said something very different to this woman. But Jesus didn't condemn her. He said, you're forgiven. Stop, stop, stop living your old ways. Live the new life. Live in this new day. The mercies of God are new every morning. And lastly, forgiveness establishes a new identity within you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That the, the, the result of sin and brokenness is death. It's eternal separation from God. Uh, and, this, and this is why Jesus came to rescue us. This story is the story of us. Before Jesus came to recognize, came to save us, we're all heading on this death sentence just like this woman, right? We're all heading that way. We're all heading to death. But Jesus stepped in and he saved us. He showed us a new place to live. He took our place on the cross. And he says, regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of what you're sitting in now, regardless of what you will do, you have a new life. Live in your new self. Don't resort back to old ways of living. Jesus wants to tell us right here and right now, live in your new self right here and right now. You're redeemed, you're restored, and you're renewed self. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Uh, I've been praying for you this week because I really believe that, um, you know, the culture that we're really going after here at Reunion and what we're really believing for is that, that God speaks outside of our message time. I know a lot of ways that we can think of church is that like God speaks during the sermon, but I believe God speaks well outside of that time too. Yes, he speaks in the sermon, but he also speaks to you here and now and he wants to speak to you this week. But there's two, two things that I've been praying for as I was sitting in this message and thinking about the ways that I think God wants us to respond. Uh, and the first is... Uh, for someone in the room that recognizes you keep resorting back to your old ways of living. You've professed Jesus. You want to follow Jesus, but there's a habit, a hang-up, something in your life, a sin, a secret that keep you keep coming back to and you feel like, man, I, I, I keep bumping into this thing. I can never get past it. I believe the Lord wants to set you free. Not meaning that you're never, ever going to sin again. When Jesus spoke to the woman, he said, go sin no more. Was Jesus' expectation that she's never, she's going to live a sinless life? No. That would be ridiculous because she's not perfect, right? When we, do, when we do resort back, when we do fall, when we do 
fall into whatever that sin might be in our lives. It's our posture and how we pick up ourselves. It's the repentant heart that Jesus is after. And I just want to speak over someone's life to say, if you feel crippled by a sin, whether it's a sexual sin or something else, Jesus wants to lift that burden off your shoulders this morning. And he wants to show you and give you a taste and see what that life is like. Even though it might be hard in the moment. To live in freedom, to stand tall, to be filled with comfort. I love Psalm 94, verse 16. It says, the Lord's comfort is going to bring you joy. And so if that's you, I hope that just resonates with you. Um, and we want to pray for you. The second is I want you to know that you're forgiven. Everybody here, know that you are forgiven. And I'll implore you to live in forgiveness. That's the first part. I can't help think now, uh, I think the Holy Spirit's highlighting to somebody, if I say the word forgiveness, there's somebody coming up on your mind that you know you need to forgive. Because he's showing, in order for you to live in forgiveness, you've got to be someone that forgives. Before you can take on a new life, you have to embody it first. So maybe there's someone in your life parent, a friend, co-worker, a boss, someone that's so deceiving to your life that you know I need to forgive. Maybe the Lord's going to show you you need to actually go to that person or maybe you just need to release it and step into your new stuff. Don't let someone's false words keep tearing you down so that you can step out into the road of forgiveness and live a forgive life. Are you with me? With all eyes closed, if you don't mind, if any of that resonates with you, do you mind just slipping a hand up? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue in worship. Is there anybody in here that's never made a public declaration of faith to Jesus? If that's you, if you've never ever publicly said, I want to identify my life with Jesus, I, like the woman in the story, Lord, if that's never been something you've spoken, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. That's where it all starts. We talk about baptism. It's where it begins. Baptism was the first thing people did. So if, if that's you, you might just put your hand up. Perfect. Beautiful. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you call us back to the road of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we as a community, we as individuals would embody your spirit in this world. That our reaction towards people that maybe we don't understand, towards people that the world rejects or ignores or accuses or condemns, our reaction would be that of Christ Jesus. That we would make room at the table of grace for all people, regardless of struggles, regardless of labels recognizing that we're all together in this, that we're all the same. So in this moment of worship, I pray, Father, that you would continue to speak, that you continue to form us, and that we would be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.